0: Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. On this special edition of the podcast, four U.S. military officers who are participating in the 2019-2020 class of federal executive fellows at Brookings share their expert insights about the effects that the coronavirus pandemic is having on the readiness of their respective services. The discussion was hosted by Brookings President John R. Allen, himself a retired United States Marine Corps four-star general and moderated by senior fellow Michael O'Hanlon, Director of Research and Foreign Policy at Brookings, where he specializes in U.S. defense strategy, the use of military force, and American national security policy. In this episode of the podcast, a portion of their conversation is presented with each of the four officers addressing the readiness and capabilities questions for their services. In order, you will hear from O'Hanlon, followed by Colonel Thomas Burke, a U.S. Army aviator, Lieutenant Colonel Chesley Dykus, a mobility pilot with the U.S. Air Force, Colonel Eric Reed, a career infantry officer in the United States Marine Corps, and Commander Jessica Worst, a U.S. Coast Guard officer. You can find out more about these officers on our website, brookings.edu. Follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get information about and links to all of our shows, including Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, The Current, and our events podcast. And now, here's Michael O'Hanlon. The two questions I'd like to pose to each analyst. First,
1: what is the military doing so far to help in the COVID-19 response that you would want to highlight, perhaps in regard to your own military service, uh, or perhaps something you think is just not getting enough attention that's important? And then second, how about traditional U.S. national security concerns around the globe? to what extent is the readiness of the American armed forces being adversely affected in the way that obviously the Teddy Roosevelt aircraft carrier was by COVID-19 among the men and women of the military. To what extent do we have to worry that our military forces could have their capabilities suffer and therefore have deterrence or responsiveness suffer in a crisis. And, and even if the military doesn't get sick, will the the measures taken to prevent that, the kind of social distancing we all do here, for example, at what point will those adversely affect military readiness because people can't train, can't keep to normal rotational schedules, can't change their military assignments. So again, question one, what's the military doing so far in response to COVID-19? Question two, at what point do you worry about military readiness being severely affected in a way that really could hurt the national security of the United States or put overseas interests at risk. And with that, Tom, I'll start with you, please.
2: Oh, so first off, thank you, General Allen. Thank you, Michael, and uh, thank you all. Um, To hit your first question, uh, I think uh, the Army and really indeed all the services responded pretty quickly to, uh, to help augment both uh, state, local, and federal agencies uh, with, with primarily, as you hinted at, Michael, the medical support. And, of course, we in the Army are able to reach across both the active component, the Guard, and the Reserve to, uh, uh, for resources. I think right now uh, all 54 uh, uh, governors of states and territories have activated, I think it's on the order of around 30,000, Uh, guardsmen to uh, to assist again those same authorities and right now what the guardsmen are doing is everything from helping with drive-through medical testing transportation of medical supplies and handing out food in some of the more uh, harder-hit distressed areas also I think as you've heard uh, we're sending medical teams to some of the harder-hit communities uh, uh, doctors nurses etc to set up uh, unit hospitals um, as well as augmenting inside actual hospital uh, centers and we've done this right now in New York uh, Seattle Dallas, Chicago, other big uh, other big city areas, so our role really is one of the supporting agency um, on the medical front. Uh, Michael to your to your second question regarding uh, readiness and and when we worry, I think it's useful to maybe uh, provide a little bit of a background in terms of what the services have done, what the army has done uh, to help maintain what I think is, a, is an important balancing act between both protecting the force and maintaining readiness. So what the Army did, uh, and frankly what all the service did pretty early, I think beginning as early as January, is begin issuing guidance to the field. Hey, this is something that we're concerned about. Commanders start thinking smartly about how you might implement Uh, protocols and procedures at the unit level based on each of your unique missions uh, to help uh, maintain that balance that I just described. Uh, One of the more visible things that the DOD did more broadly is implement the stop movement order which is designed to help contribute to the overall flattening of the curve of the the pandemic spread as well as protecting the force. So. uh, so as I mentioned, you know that, the, the key now that each of the services with the armies is trying to figure out and, and, and is indeed doing is, is maintaining that balance between uh, uh, readiness as well as, as protecting the forces. We call it in the civilian world social distancing, the military refers to it as, as tactical dispersion. And so it's, it's what you may have heard or seen in the news with uh, General Abrams has done, for example, in, 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 in Korea, establishing these safety bubbles um that are that include uh you know screening procedures and basically the social distancing that still allows us through smart implementation of safety protocols stills allow still allow us at the lower level uh to conduct training so that is something that the that the units are are doing um we can't neglect uh, training those mission essential tasks uh what you have seen of course in the news and getting to your question about the readiness uh, are some of the efforts that the military has taken to start scaling back or modifying some of the larger collective training events that we do and so i think uh, what the services will do what the army will do is is really start looking hey at what point will readiness be impacted and then when can we begin resuming some of those larger scale collective training events uh, that are key to maintaining readiness uh, defender 20 was modified of course pacific pathways mission into thailand was cut back a little bit so so those are some of the things that have had, that we have done uh, to maintain that balance, get after the mission central tasks while also protecting our force. Thank you.
1: That's a great start. Just one quick follow up since you are going first, and I want to get a little bit of a tactical feel here for what's going on. And you alluded to it, but just to be even more specific. So, typically at the small squad, at the platoon level, individual soldiers or small groups of soldiers, up to dozens of soldiers, would still be doing a lot of the same training they normally would do. But at higher echelons, let's say, when you get into the hundreds and thousands, uh, companies, battalions, brigades, or large exercises, those are the ones that are being curtailed or suspended or postponed? That's correct. So
2: you're, you're, you're seeing, again, and then we're really talking about the training exercises, some of the larger scale training exercises. For example, today it was reported that uh, in, uh, Pacific Pathways, which is a key mission that we do in the, in the, in the Pacific uh, with, our, with our allies and partners in that region. Uh, we just concluded a, a, a few weeks early the Pacific Pathways mission, um, but not until we had first gotten after those essential tasks that we needed to do. So that, that important partnership that we do with other nations to build, uh, to, to really help them as well uh, build readiness, we, we, we pulled that back. Once we met those collective training events, we pulled it back so that we could again achieve that appropriate level of balance. To your point about the smaller unit, and this is a point that General McConville has made. That's really the core of all units, that squad team level training. And because they already as a function of, of, of how we train, because they already tactically disperse, we're still able to get after that. But the, 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 the bigger point that you raised is the importance of those major collective training events. And, and those are the ones that our leaders right now are looking at very closely. Hey, in the next 30, 60, 90 days, when can we begin to resume those larger scale collective training events so that we don't have any, any uh, degradation in our
1: overall readiness? That's fantastic. Thank you. Chesley, over to you, my friend. Good afternoon. John Allen, Mike, uh, thank you for the
3: opportunity for this. Um, I will, uh, I'm going to echo some of Tom point, Tom's uh, primary points. Uh, hands down, I think the Air Force's biggest contribution to this is the addition of medical personnel, uh, from the guard and reserve. Uh, I have a friend who's in the reserves, um, who just found out yesterday, uh, that she is heading to New York. As you can imagine, um, that's, uh, uh some people, uh, may or may not be prepared for this, but that, uh, it's, it's on a, it's, it's on a significant scale. Um, not having exact numbers in front of me, as far as things the air force is doing unique. Um, there, uh, I'll, I'll point to two things uh, which just so happen to be in uh, my area of expertise and I'm not talking about the mobility world of the Air Force selfishly uh, but the Air Force has done two things uh, just this month um, that, that are also what I would consider to be uh, uh, significant inputs. Um, in the early April, uh, a C-17 flew about uh, 950,000 a uh, COVID-19 swab test from Italy to Memphis, Tennessee, so that those could then be distributed via FedEx um, to various parts uh, of the country. Uh, that That is uh, one thing. The, the second item is that uh, three, uh, I don't know if they were active duty or they were contractors, but three individuals in Afghanistan tested positive for COVID-19. And the the C-17 also has a system that allows uh, to put these individuals in basically a bubble to prevent uh, help prevent transmission. Uh, But those uh, that aircraft flew three people home uh, from Afghanistan, not home uh, from Afghanistan to uh, Germany just uh, three to four days ago. So those those three things collectively are what I would say are the Air Force's biggest contributions Um, as far as readiness. Uh, I'm not overly concerned uh, for readiness for the Air Force, Um, and I don't think it really needs to be reassessed until probably sometime this summer. Uh, Air Force leadership has gone on record saying uh, what our priorities are. Um, That includes current operations uh, in both the Middle East and the Korean Peninsula, uh, cyber operations, uh, standing up the Space Force, as well as Homeland Defense operations. Uh, things are happening across the Air Force, uh, as as uh, Tom alluded to. They're just not happening as fast as we're accustomed to. So we we are uh, we're not exactly where we would like to be in this fiscal year. Uh, but at the same time, the hole is 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 very easy to dig out of at the moment. Um, obviously, the big question is how long this goes on, and 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 where it, where is that deficit at? Uh, in the summer, in the fall, or or into next year. Uh, and with that, Mike, I'll uh, I'll hand it back to you for questions.
1: Great, Chesley. Before I go to Eric, just one quick follow-up for you as well. Do we have a sense about roughly what percent of the Air Force we think has COVID-19 right now compared to the population writ large? Obviously, in the Teddy Roosevelt case, we were concerned this could be the equivalent of a cruise ship, and Eric will speak to that kind of uh, situation in just a moment. But across the Air Force, m- have you seen any statistics on uh, expected or suspected incidence rate? Uh, I have not seen statistics. It, it is
3: the, uh, so crew aircraft are are a big concern. It's, it's similar. It's not a perfect analogy compared to an aircraft carrier, but obviously there are people in close spaces and they have set up protocol uh, so that uh, crew members of, of, of crew-type airplanes can can adhere to, as, as best they can, uh, CDC protocol. It's not perfect, uh, but in, in a show of ingenuity, it's what they can do to adhere to those guidelines as best as possible while keeping uh, certain missions moving.
0: Thank you. And Eric,
1: over to you, my friend.
4: Hey, thank you, uh, Michael. Uh, good afternoon, Eric Reed. I'm the Naval Services Rep this year. So w- what are the Naval Services doing? I think our primary role is to continue to preserve U.S. interests globally with four deployed forces and standing ready to deter and prevailing conflict. And so we're, we're still doing that. Uh, domestically, uh, as everyone knows, the Navy was tasked with high-profile support to, with the deployments of the Mercy and the Comfort um, Hospital ships. I think... That demonstrated a unique capability and, and, and was intended to send a strong political message that federal help is on the way. Um, efficacy, I think, remains to be seen. Um, as an aside, I, I think we need to remain mindful that this is a public health viral pandemic emergency with no proven treatment and we're still building up a testing capability. Um, And other than our medical personnel and some selected civil affairs assets, the naval services don't have a whole lot of special competency for for pandemic response, other than the fact that we have a tremendous logistical augmentation capability standing at the ready to to support uh, domestically or internationally. Um, Military members are just as vulnerable as any citizen to COVID. And Indeed, uh, due to communal living conditions on ships and in barracks, uh, and in the field, military life is pretty fertile for, for community spread of the virus. Uh, so we're, we're adapting. Uh, until, we field, uh, until we have relief from the outbreak and we have adequate volumes of testing fielded and a vaccine potentially, the Navy and Marine Corps are mitigating through distancing has already been, uh, already been alluded to by, by Tom and Chesley, uh, following CDC guidelines um, and canceling non-essential group activities while still conducting training as, as best able. Um, That is a a uh, commander-level, medically-informed decision and and in practice, and and we're learning valuable lessons at at all levels of of command uh, about what's truly important, about what we can can, uh, curtail, uh, and we're rediscovering how to prioritize a little bit. Uh, One of our greatest immediate friction points has been navigating uh, our throughput of incoming and outgoing sailors and Marines into our MANTAR system. Uh, amid, amid the outbreak. Um, four quick points on Naval readiness. Uh, I would raise an answer to, to the second question. Um, we remain the most capable and ready Naval military force in human history and, and nothing about COVID jeopardizes that uh, in the long run. Uh, readiness impacts to our ground units in the Marine Corps, are, are they're not consequential in any degradations we've had as alluded to a little bit by Tom, to collective unit skills they're easily recoverable once we start collective training again and once we start collective group activities again, so minimal or negligible diminishment in that. Point three, the readiness impacts to our, the currency of our flight crews, collective ship's crew actions and maintenance, and flight deck crews, they're more tangible, uh, but they're mitigated through the use of simulators in the, in the case of, of crews and flight crews and for the flight decks through prioritized scheduling when we have availability, Uh, to train and flights are still happening. We're just, we're just mitigating via CDC guidelines. Uh, Point four, and the last one on, on naval readiness is uh, outbreaks aboard Navy ships and submarines are obviously very serious and consequential and the fleet's, uh, the fleet is learning and adapting uh, as we speak. Uh, From where I sit, naval wise, three points for my bottom line. Number one, there's absolutely no cause for, for hyperventilating over readiness impacts at this point. COVID is a new fact of life, and we're adjusting to it. Number two, it's relative. So uh, I'm reminded of the old joke about the hikers and the bear. We don't, we don't have to outrun the bear, just the other hikers. Uh, our adversaries have to deal with and, and operate in a COVID world just as we do, um, and it's competitive. We have a lot of capacity and capability that other competitors don't have, uh, which brings me to my final observation, which is number three. Uh, This is all about balancing risks, uh, balancing competing risks, right? So in the absence of a military threat, the correct thing to do is to protect the force and preserve our strength as best we can by mitigating COVID while we're increasing testing capability and and awaiting a vaccine. If a legitimate military threat emerges, the relative risks and consequences of COVID will descend in importance, and in that case, we'll respond accordingly uh, and, and we'll do what we need to do to prevail in conflict, while simultaneously mitigating the the COVID as best we can. That's that's fantastic.
1: Thank you Eric. And now Jessica over to you uh, to explain what the Coast Guard's already been doing and how you see the situation. Thanks.
5: Great. Hey, good afternoon. Uh, thanks General Allen and Mike for this opportunity. Um, I'm Jess Wurst. I'm the Coast Guard Beth this year. And as Mike said, although the Coast Guard is one of the six military services, we certainly are quite unique in our mission set. And I think that played out here. Um, The Coast Guard has been supporting the COVID-19 response really from the beginning. But often I think the public's not aware of our vast mission set, uh, which does include responding to the unexpected, frankly. Um, We regularly conduct search and rescue, response to natural disasters like hurricanes. We respond to oil spills in the marine environment. Um, So this is just another emergency response for us, really, albeit on a much broader geographic scale. Really, I think one of the more important roles we've filled in this response is management of the marine transportation system. Over 90% of U.S. overseas trade really leaves and enters the US by ship. Uh, and it's been an incredibly important role to kind of keep those goods moving during this response. So the Coast Guard has captain of the ports across the country who are really responsible for keeping the commerce flowing while at the same time maintaining the safety of the port, both the infrastructure and the people there. So in order to ensure that needed cargo is still getting into the US and we're getting the supplies we need, particularly at this time, We've put additional measures in place um, for screening the vessels that are coming in, certainly including looking at previous ports of call, putting additional restrictions in if vessels have visited certain affected areas prior to coming to the US to really ensure we can keep everyone safe in the process of moving commerce. Um, We've also been addressing significant cruise ship concerns as I'm sure everyone's heard of. We've worked under the guidance of the CDC um, with a bunch of other federal, state, and local partners, including uh, CBP, TSA, state and local entities, to really coordinate the safe landing, screening, quarantine where necessary, and repatriation of about 250,000 cruise ship passengers um, from over 120 vessels, all in the span of about a month. Uh, We've also conducted an increased number of medevacs as necessary as well. So that's probably the most important role that I think a lot of folks haven't seen the Coast Guard doing. Um, In terms of your question on readiness, you know, the Coast Guard has challenges like all the other military services that were mentioned. For the most part, we've been able to adapt and overcome those, uh, whether it be, you know, modifying the way we're doing training, reorganizing reorganizing the local watch schedules to kind of maintain social distancing the best we can, or even prioritizing somewhat needed IT infrastructure upgrades because our system was so antiquated. Um, but because we've been able to address these challenges, really our overall readiness has not been diminished. I think one of the most important contributing factors to this, though, is that our senior leaders have really empowered our field commanders to take the necessary actions to both protect their personnel while at the same t- time maintaining their unit readiness. Uh, they recognize it's not a one-size-fits-all situation, and we do have Coast Guard units spread geographically across the country. Uh, and in much some you know, smaller locations, larger locations, every solution is going to be a little bit different in each geographic area. So really I would say that our Coast Guard system is built on the ability to adapt and surge for disasters or any kind of emergency response. So under the present circumstances, I I don't see the Coast Guard's, uh, I don't see any problems in the Coast Guard's ability to maintain operations um, or being significantly, you know, degraded in any way. We'll continue to overcome challenges that are presented and we'll continue to deliver the services, you know, that are expected of us. Of course, we'll need to reassess in the future in terms of the longer-term impacts that folks have already mentioned, but at this point, I don't see any degradation in uh, Coast Guard readiness.
0: The Brookings Cafeteria podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues, starting with audio engineer Gaston Reveredo and producer Chris McKenna. Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, does the book interviews, and Lizette Baylor and Eric Abalahan provide design and web support. Finally, my thanks to Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and cents, The Current, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it in the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.